welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, why not check out our website, birminghamvineyard.com. So we have been uh, in an insight series, we've called it, and what we're doing is we're looking at um, those little books in the Bible that you either might not have read ever or maybe just read very quickly if you did the Bible in a year thing, Um, and, and often they're full of, sort of, they're packed with oddness is probably a good way to put it. There's, there's a lot of oddness in them. Um, and so we thought we'd, we'd spend a little time going through those. Uh, and this week we are going to be looking at Haggai. Um, so I've got a little timeline there. If you've been here the last few weeks, um, we've done Nahum, Obadiah, Habakkuk. And then this week we are in Haggai. There we go. Um, so just to give you a little bit of a sense of where we're at in the history of the people of God. Um, Habakkuk last week was all about this promise that God was going to come and judge and he was going to come and take away Israel into exile from their land. So in Haggai, as you can see, this is afterwards. This is, they've been in Babylon for 70 years, the people of God, taken essentially as spoils of war to another country. The idea was that they would have their own culture kind of drawn out of them. That's how the empire worked. They'd take people from one place to another, take away their own culture, their identity, their language, assimilate them as much as possible. Um, And that was how they kept power over people. And so in this this book, what's happened is that people who've never lived in this land before, who've never worshipped God anywhere outside Babylon, are coming back to this place. And God wants to talk to them about priorities. He wants to talk to them about promises and partnering with them. And he wants to talk about himself as their priest. So that's what we're going to talk about. Okay. So I'm not going to read all of Haggai, um, but we will kind of drop into some specific passages, pick out some major themes, um, and then you can have a read at home if you want to. Does this, this sounds a little odd to me. Is it sounding odd to you guys? Are you okay? Great. Cool. That's fine. I will, I'll deal with the oddness. It's fine. Okay. Haggai chapter one, um, verses three to four, and then seven to 11. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house, the temple, lies in ruins? Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labours. Okay. Have you ever been in that situation where you've been working really hard on something, uh, maybe at work, and then discovered that it is not your boss's priority at all? Like, have you ever been in that crushing kind of situation? You spent loads of time on a project you thought it was really important and then actually discover that you shouldn't have been prioritising that at all. It's kind of excruciating, isn't it? It must have been really hard for the people of God to hear this, like they've rebuilt things, they've got homes, they've got places to be comfortable. And God says, actually, you've got it wrong. I want you to prioritise something else. God says, actually... Build the temple, not your own houses. Sort your worship out first before you try to sort everything else out. But actually, I think there are two priorities of God that we see in this passage kind of sitting behind that. The two priorities of God that I think we'll see, and we'll talk about this. One is that God wants to take pleasure in what we do, and he wants to be glorified through it. Okay, He wants us to do the right thing, put him first, and glorify him through it, and that makes him happy. 
Okay, so when I say that, I immediately get a problem with it, okay? Because if they were a human saying that, that makes them a horrible human, doesn't it? So, so think of a kind of brash world leader, Twitter mogul, we won't name any names, but someone who wants their own glory at the expense of everyone else. That's what they want, that's their thing. They're a bit like a petulant child demanding attention and actually making life much more difficult for everyone else. They'll notice me, notice me, tell me, do my things or I'm going to make your life really difficult. And it's kind of funny, but that's how we read it isn't it, when we read about God. And sometimes, actually, that's how we see God portrayed outside the Bible and outside the church. And actually, our problem with that is absolutely justified. People shouldn't do that to each other. That shouldn't be the priority of anybody. If we were dealing with a human, we'd have a right to go, that's not fair, that's not kind. However, God is not a human. You might have known that before you came, probably not a spoiler. That's the first difference that makes. We don't worship humans. Actually, worshipping anybody... Our spouse, our kids, our boss, our business leaders, media stars, sports stars, politicians. If we do what worship is, which is giving all of your life and all of your trust and all of your hope for the future to those people, they will let us down, won't they? Because they're people. The gods of this world let everybody down all the time because they're just humans. They're not worthy of glory. They're not worthy of worship. If you trust them with everything, they will let you down. And it won't bring you joy. I'll let to do that. But God, God is not like that. God is all-powerful. He did create everything. He does sustain life, all, all life through his power. He's the thing that's running behind all the physical, geological, biological processes around us. And he made you. Like, he made each of us individually. He knows us and he loves us completely. So that person is worthy, aren't they, of trust and glory and worship. Like, that person is worth putting all of your hope into and when we do that, it brings him joy. Now, you might have experienced a similar kind of joy, okay? If you're in charge of anyone else, maybe in your workplace or your family or somewhere else, um, it's really hard. It makes you unhappy when they don't look after each other, okay? When you want them to work together on something that really matters and they just don't, and they hurt each other and they make it difficult. God is unhappy when we're horrible to each other, when we tell lies, when we care more about ourselves than the poor, where there's racism, where there's fraud, where there's dishonesty, where there's violence, God really cares about it. He's not just like, that's fine, doesn't matter. He, he genuinely cares. And that means the flip side of that is that when God is joyful, that's a place where we thrive as well, okay? A place with honesty, kindness, justice, love, and forgiveness. Those things make God happy. They make me quite happy too. The places were more like that there would be more happiness, right? A place where God is put first is a place where everybody wins and everybody thrives, which is why when God says, do things that make me happy and do things for my glory, that actually that means do things that will help you thrive and make the world better. They're tied up together. A place where God is put first is a place where everyone wins. And actually that makes it easier, doesn't it? Because this passage, is, it's, it's really clear and a little bit, it, it is a little bit awkward, I think, sometimes for us to talk about this kind of stuff because God very clearly makes it personal. In this passage, he says, I will make a drought come. I will hold back the rain from you. I will hold back what you, what you need from you. Now, there's a difference here between punishment and discipline. Punishment says, you did a wrong thing 
Okay, I'm just going to look at you because you're my husband and I can tell you that without things. Um, <laughs> you did something wrong, so I'm going to hurt you. Okay, justice is served. There was a wrong, there was hurt instead, sorted. Discipline is not punishment. Discipline is me, I mean, I probably wouldn't do this to you, Fair, that's awkward. Um, but discipline says you're going the wrong way, so I will constructively redirect you. Okay, if you manage people at work, if you're parenting children, again, you'll know this feeling. And actually doing that to someone is sometimes allowing them to feel the consequence of what they did. They make a poor choice and you go, I love you. This is what happens when you make that choice. Or you say, you're making a poor choice, so this is gonna, I'm going to make this deliberately happen to you because I need you to understand that that's a really bad way to go. And that feels horrible, actually, doesn't it? I don't know if you find that, but it does to me. Taking away privilege, denying them some kind of opportunity, making their life less joyful for a time is really hard. I don't want to do that to anybody. I don't want to do that to my kids. But I, because I want them to thrive... That's why I don't want to do it. I want them to be happy. But actually, if I'm going to be a responsible parent or a responsible manager or anything else, I'm going to want that person to be happy. And sometimes that's going to mean that if I don't redirect them from a course of action that ends in misery, if we let someone kind of roll on down a path of poor choices that we know ends badly for them, then actually it's not kindness to not help them to shift that, is it? And so if the glory and joy of God is where we're most safe and loved and whole and healed and fruitful, God sometimes needs, as individuals and as a people, to kind of discipline us and get us back on track. Now, what I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that all difficulty is that. I'm not saying, please leave this place and go over your life with a fine-tooth comb and anywhere that there's difficulty, obviously God is telling you you're doing something wrong. That's not helpful and it's not truthful. There's so many other reasons that things happen in the Bible, other people's actions, the devil, general hardship from living in a really unjust and difficult world, all of that stuff can be happening. So it's not always, it's not always God's discipline. Actually, I don't think it always happens very often. There are a few ways to tell. I'm just going to talk about those quickly because I think it's important to know that. How do we know if it is God's discipline? Okay, I think there's three things. He will tell us what he does with Haggai. Is he's really clear. He says, this is what you're not doing and this is what I need you to do. He's not, he's not like... I'm going to kind of tell you off and send you to your room or I'm going to withhold everything from you that you need, but I'm not going to tell you why. You've got to figure it out. He's not like that. He tells us, and then he gives them really clear instructions. Go and build the house. Go and do this like this. Gather the things you need. Make the temple happen. This is step by step how I want you to do it. And he tells us, he gives us clear instructions, and then he helps us carry it out. I won't read it all now, but when God speaks to Haggai, tells them the situation, he gives a clear instruction, verses 12 to 15, it's all about God again. I will give you the strength. I, my spirit, will stir up the ability to do this. God, God, God is involved in doing it every step of the way. And so if God does want you to change direction, if he does want to do something like that, he'll be clear. He'll give you a clear instruction and he'll help, okay? Because he's a really good parent and he's a really good boss. So the question this threw up for me was, am I doing this? Am I prioritising God's priorities? This is a very specific bit of the Bible, isn't it? It's for a long time ago. I probably don't need to build a large temple out of wood in the Middle East. That's probably not what God wants me to do. Is there a principle here that actually um, speaks to my life right now and speaks to our lives right now? Well, it made me ask the question, how would I know what my priorities are? Can anyone think of like, how might we know what, uh, what we were prioritising? 
Give me some, give me some shouting. Where you spend a lot of time. Okay, yeah. Where do you spend your money? What you think about. Yeah, what you worry about, think about. Yeah, okay. Let's take a minute and think about those things. Just, just for yourself or chat about it with someone if, you, if you're a bit more talkative. Take a minute and think, what is it, what is it that you're prioritising at the moment? Go. Okay, and as you're thinking about that, I then actually think, what are two or three things that God would love you to prioritise right now? What are two or three things that God, if he could give you time and space to prioritise something, what would he have you prioritise? Okay, you can always come back to those conversations later. So I think we need to feel the challenge of this a little bit a lot of the time and, and also the invitation. There's always something that God might want to redirect us into. There's always something that God might have that's more. Um, but there's also God being with us and loving us all of the time, even when we're not doing brilliantly. So just to put that out there. So the first thing about Haggai, prioritising God's priorities. The priority of God is himself, his glory and his joy. And when we live within that, that's when we thrive. That's when the world gets most changed for the better. It's the right thing to do and ultimately ends in our good. But God doesn't stop there with Haggai. He doesn't just stop with priorities and things. He starts to give some specific promises about what it will look like, what the outcome of their obedience will look like. So let's go Haggai chapter 2, verses 3 to 5 and verse 9. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. That was the king at the time. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you, do not fear. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. Did you spot the promises that we're to partner with? There were some promises in there. Anyone spot some? That's okay. I didn't ask you to flag them up. That's fine. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's my job to prepare them. You don't have to find them in the moment. Um, I am with you. The first promise of God to his people, the one that he keeps repeating all the way through the Bible and all the way through the Old and New Testament, I am with you. And with it, this command to work and to be strong to start doing what we know that we should, put one foot in front of the other and do what God's asked. Haggai talks to the leaders and he talks to the priests and he talks to everybody. This is everybody's thing. Well, why need to be strong? Why is that in there? Well, actually like the people Haggai's talking to in verse three, who is left among you who's seen the house in its former glory? None of them had seen the temple. This wasn't an age where they could like be like, oh, I've got some photos from 75 years ago on my phone. I'll show you. They didn't have that. They just didn't know what it was. Everyone had been born in Babylon, probably their parents, grandparents, everybody. Their culture, their language, their expectation is all different. Um, and actually, I think this is really similar to us, isn't it? This is really similar to us in 21st century Britain. We haven't seen it. Like, we, uh, we haven't seen what God could do. We haven't seen loads and loads of our friends probably come to faith. We haven't seen um, lots of people healed or set free. We haven't seen some of the things that Jesus says that we can see. Um, most of us haven't seen that. Most of us have maybe seen little tiny increments, little stories, or a few people, or a few things happen. But we haven't seen what we know God could do. 
the thing is, this is always the case, isn't it? When you're starting out on a new venture, if you've ever like started a new business or um, gone on a gone on, like a decided to get a career and then build up to it, that dream, that idea, can be there in your mind, but it will only work if you take steps up to it. Every successful business, every qualified doctor, every beautiful garden, it starts with an idea and then some steps, hard work, partnering with what you can see to get there. You've got to kind of act like this thing that you can see is reachable, work like it, like it's true, and then be strong and carry on. Okay. So that's the promise. The second promise that's there, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. The original temple built by Solomon was massive and golden and amazing, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. God is promising an even more amazing one. And I think, again, I think that's something for us today is that God wants to do something that he's not done before, that we've not seen him do before. I think, there's a, there's a, I think God wants to bring people to faith in, in numbers and in depth that we haven't seen in this country for a really long time, maybe ever. And I think he wants to deepen that kind of faith to the point where it spills out of the church automatically. Where people, there might be some opposition in that. There might be some people who find that difficult because they're not part of church or um, they find the God thing hard. But I think there's something happening that, that God wants to raise up people to, who love the Bible and who are filled with the Holy Spirit who get to go and take that out around and, and we see people come into church in, in numbers and in depth that we haven't seen. I think that's what God wants to do. And I think it's something that God is inviting us to work for and dream for and step by step kind of build together. That's why we're here. That's his priority. He wants to have a place where he's glorified and that he enjoys and that haven't, hasn't changed. So if it's a promise, I'm not saying that's, that's not a promise of God. That's just me. That could just be a lot of cheese and late nights. Like that might not be true. You know, <laughs> we prophesy in part. Okay, so if anyone ever stands up here and says they think this is God, they're probably a 60% right on a good day. Just, just, let's just be, let's be clear about that. If we, it's a promise, why do we need to work for it? Why, do we, why are we saying, okay, there's a promise from God, why do we need to work for it? Just, just as a spoiler about this, if, if you're looking back into the history of this stuff, um, this promise didn't happen. It never happened. The temple wasn't even close to what Solomon's temple had been, let alone better. And it was destroyed again by the Romans in 63 BC. The people of God never kind of wholeheartedly went after God again. They sort of tried a bit and stopped bothering. They had prophet after prophet. They were never quite free of foreign oppression and different empires kind of taking over them. Now, this is a problem if when we read words from God or promises from God that we think, well, that will definitely happen regardless of what we do, okay? You might have heard quotes like, well, no word from God will ever fail or the words of the Lord never return to him empty. God always completes his intention, okay? Have you heard things like that? Now, some, like some of those are from the Bible, so you can nod. That is okay. There are some promises, okay, that God, Jesus says he'll build his church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. That's not something that we can mess up by, by doing something in our own lives. But actually, in our individual lives and our lives as a people, as a worshipping community, God is clear that some promises are contingent. Like that the things that we could get to, we won't get to unless we partner with God in them. Like unless we step by step, stone by stone, prayer by prayer, difficult day by difficult day, work with him in order to see that happen. Being strong and trusting him. Unless we work with God, we won't see all that he's promised in our lifetimes. 
Okay, now I'm not saying don't trust. Okay, what I'm not saying is like, okay, we're going to work really hard. We're not going to trust. Um, but what I'm also saying is if God's promised it to you and you can see it and you think I'd love to go for that, what you can't do is sit around and wait and not build your character or work for it or give things a try or talk to people about it or pray about it. You can't expect God to do that because he wants you to do it with him. He loves you. He wants to walk this out with you and be with you day by day, step by step with the spirit, just like building anything worthwhile, building a career, building a house, building a family, whatever it is. And that's every choice. Like every choice can count. What we do with our time or our money, what we prioritize, what we do with our bodies, our media, our prayer, our friends, Following Jesus has been called um, a long obedience in the same direction. Okay, St. Eugene Peterson, writer of the message version. Too many wrong directions, and actually we might miss out a little bit on what God has for us. Uh, this is the way, okay? There's always been the way. Sorry, I really wanted to get a Mandalorian meme into a preach for a long time. I don't know if, I, I don't know if I've segued it too much. I apologise. A really practical example, I've got a friend, we've got a friend who runs a tree surgeon business and he runs it with a real, what he calls a kingdom mindset. He wants to run his whole business prioritising God's kingdom, glorifying God instead of himself. And that means he employs people he believes in, even if, and actually sometimes because they've had really difficult backgrounds, he'll kick them out, he'll pay them fairly, he'll pray for them, he'll train them up, um, even though that basically means he's raising up competition. So people get trained up by him, given a new start by him, get great references, get all their kit, and then go start another business and take his customers. Um, because his priority isn't his business. His priority is changing lives for the kingdom. That's what he wants to see. That's what he can see in his mind and works for. And actually, we've got um, a, an amazing example of that, haven't we? In South Birmingham, we've had this Cadbury thing for 150 years. It's given us parks and schools and play places and all of those things, actually from business leaders who were Christians, partnering with something that they saw God want to do to bring some of the kingdom here. Okay. When we start stepping into the promises of God, he can do far more than we ask or imagine as we partner with him little by little. So we partner with his promises. We prioritise his priorities. That's it then, right? That was, a great, that was a great time Sunday morning. Work hard. Trust God. Be strong. Do what he says. Partner with his promises. Make his priorities your own. And slowly, surely, wonderfully, you will see God glorified and life-changing kingdom come in. Yes? Come on. Thanks, Jeff. Um, <laughs> okay, let's not get comfortable. Let's get involved. Let's get busy. Almost. Okay, almost. There's a weird bit. There's a weird bit at the very last bit of Haggai. He starts going on about meat and robes and dead bodies. My three favourite topics. Um, <laughs> Haggai 2, 12 to 14 says, If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said no. Then Haggai said, If someone who's unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people, with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. So this is, this is a bit crushing, actually, if you've read the previous bit of Haggai. Because God said, okay, look, prioritise my priorities, build my house, not your own, don't get, don't do for your own comfort, like do worship instead. Um, and then he talks about promises and the things he's got for them and how hard they need to work for that. And then he said, you know what? Kind of doesn't matter what they do because it'll always be unclean anyway. Actually, 
That's always going to be true. Um, this is my holy bathrobe, by the way. So, you know, I've got, I did bring some meat in a packet, but because of germs, I'm just going to keep it in the plastic, not put it in my robe. Um, the Israelites had all these rituals. They had, that's what the temple was for. Special priests with special help could connect you with God. They could forgive your sins with certain rituals. Those rituals would be make that person holy and the robe holy and the meat that was used in the ceremony holy. But actually, you wouldn't become holy. I could come, I mean, it'd be weird. I'd come and touch you with my meat. You would not become holy. I could touch you with my robe. I could touch you with my hands. You're not going to become holy. It's not going to change you, okay? It isn't transferable. All those temple rituals could do could make a few specific things holy in a few specific ways. It couldn't transform the whole world around it and everything it touched. It was really open, actually, to being contaminated. So if you'd touched a dead body or you'd done something that was unclean, like ritually unholy, um, and you touched my robe, I'd have to go wash it and wash myself. And then I still wouldn't be able to be holy and be in the presence of God. So there's this there's this hopelessness at the end of Haggai that kind of says, you know, when you've got this all settled and you've got a temple and you've got the rituals and you've got the religion, you still won't be enough. Which is fun. So there's priorities and there's promises, but there's also God's priest. And that's what this bit of the Bible is pointing to. Do you know what happens when people touch Jesus' robe? What happens? They get healed. They get healed. They do get made holy. Do you know what happens when Jesus touches a dead body? He destroys the death. The person comes alive again because he does make it holy. Now that is the absolute scandal of the gospel and it's the thing that we need to hear when we hear this thing of working with God, partnering with God, doing what he says, yes, yes, okay. And when that feels like a massive burden, the scandal of the gospel, this, this Jesus life that runs all the way through the Old Testament and into the New, the scandalous truth is that we could never work hard enough to be holy like we will, I believe we will see God do amazing things if we partner with him, but we will never do enough to be holy and loved by God. We don't have to. We don't have to. Jesus means that you could walk up in here on a Sunday or any day and you could have completely blown it. You can make every terrible choice in the book. You can prioritise all of the wrong things for years and years. You can know the right thing to do and not do it. You can be the worst person in the universe. You can spend your whole life working against God and one touch from him, one little bit of his presence and one yes said to Jesus, and you're holy. You're holy without having to do any of the other stuff. You get to be part of the promise. Jesus is the ultimate priest. Jesus is what the temple was pointing to. Jesus is what the glory and the joy of God is all about. Not me, not, not me, not you. Jesus is that temple not made with hands, the displayed glory of God himself. And this church, the church that he's building, like this here on a Sunday, but us through the week and us in Birmingham and us all across the world and all our different languages and colours and textures and funny weirdnesses that we do. Like we're the living temple of God that get to partner with him in that worship. And we do need to partner with him. We do need to prioritise his priorities, but more than anything, we need to let him work. We need to say yes to him and yield and allow him to do what he wants because with Jesus, anything is possible. Why don't we stand? We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. Why not come along and visit us? 
We gather at three services across two sites on a Sunday and meet during the week in small groups across the city. More information on both of these can be found on our website. Thanks for listening and God bless.